This is the Place for a Purpose podcast. We want to help you live out what Jesus said was the most important thing you could do with your life. Love God and love your neighbor, including your next door neighbors. So we're going to keep neighboring on your mind by encouraging you with practical ways to connect with those next door so you can live knowing you've been placed for a purpose because your address is not an accident and neither is your neighbor's. Welcome, everybody. We are in our series on finding your place. And today we're going to talk about loving your next door neighbor in a rural and small town context. And so today we have Ronnie Martin, who is a singer, songwriter, recording artist, author, and lead pastor of Substance Church in Ashland, Ohio, where he lives with his wife, Melissa, in a restored colonial house that was built in 1895. Sounds awesome. Ronnie is also the director of Leader Renewal for the Harbor Network, where he works alongside church planners and pastors in areas related to pastoral care. Ronnie is also the co-host of the Happy Ramp podcast and The Art of Pastoring with Jared Wilson. And Ronnie has authored numerous books, including the one we're going to talk about today, Pastoring in Small Towns. And it's written for pastors, but I found it to have so much gold for really any believer who lives in a small town and has a heart for God. That lives anywhere. That lives anywhere, but especially in a small town and who wants to love God and love their neighbor and engage in his mission. So thank you so much, Ronnie, for giving us your time. We're really excited to have you with us here today. Oh, man, no, the privilege is mine. Thank you. So, Ronnie, you begin by painting the picture of small towns that many of us have seen in a Netflix documentary, where there's farmlands and you can see a gas station, maybe an ice cream parlor, but then you start to see these ramshackle houses mixed in with these country estates and then these dilapidated trailer parks. So I love how you took us right into the scene. And you talk about people coming into your office at times with either a crossbow or a raccoon that they claim is a service animal. So this is a guy I want to hear from. So what took you, a suburban California guy, all the way to Ashland, Ohio, and how has it been different? That is a loaded question. In my early days as a musician, I traveled around a lot, traveled through the U.S. quite a bit. And there was something about small towns and more rural environments that really captured my attention. And I was always curious about how people live in them. I had friends who lived in those types of areas. And having come from Southern California, one of the big pieces was that they lived for a quarter of the price. They had twice as much house and lived for about a quarter of the price that I had to live with. It started with just a fascination and years and years went by. And as I slowly got more into ministry, we just had some opportunities open up to relocate to Ohio. And this was almost 14 years ago. And we jumped at it. We really thought this is going to be a big change. This is not anything that I was used to, born and raised in Southern California. There were enough things about it that we really were willing to take the step and see what God might do. And it's been a journey. We discounted a lot of things. There was a lot of things we couldn't have known. And we're still learning some of those things, to be quite honest. When you spend a long time in one place, that place becomes formed to you. Changing that after such a long period of time, it's been incredibly challenging. We're here. We've been here a long time, but we're still learning a lot and definitely some cultural challenges. When they said culture shock, I shrugged because for us, it was like, well, it's ministry, right? Then you saw the raccoon. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Ministry-wise, we're relocating to do ministry. And at the end of the day, 
we're talking about hearts and people are the same. And that is true. But I think what we've discovered is that people get to where they are in different ways. And those are some of the things that we've had to discover and we've been challenged by. I love you mentioned some of the idyllic parts of living in a small town. You mentioned sitting out on the porch, drinking iced tea, driving by cows, seeing John Deere tractors, which as an aside, I appreciate it because my grandparents' farm, it was all John Deere. So I'm glad you didn't mention the other color of tractor or else I would have had to, I would have had to put the book down. So other than cost of living, which we can relate, we live in the middle of Missouri. What have been some other benefits that you've experienced from living in a small town rural context? I think a couple of the big things that pop out for us have been the pace. There is space and there is margin here. And people are not running at a frantic pace. A lot of it has to do with actually having four seasons. The weather at some point prevents people from just continuing to go and go. In Southern California, the weather never changes. So it is really a 365 rush because there's nothing preventing you from doing anything. And so I really like the limitations that weather puts on people and their rhythms. And it's really a beautiful thing. And there is just not a lot of hurry. And I think that does something to a person's heart. And it allows you to see the world a lot differently. Instead of thinking everything has to happen now, you're okay with things developing over time. That's something that I really love, but I've had to learn how to adapt to that too. I actually love it, but I have to adapt to it. That's been a really beautiful and challenging thing at the same time because you stumble out the front door in California and you get to choose one of six targets in front of you. (laughs) And here you got to drive 23 minutes to the closest one, which again, is still a first world problem, but it's a whole different thing. So I think that's been one of the things that we've really loved. And then I think there's a sense of living in a small town. This can be, again, a positive and a challenge, which is just that you really get to know people, you get to know faces. And so whether you're in the same church or not, or whether you even live in adjacent neighborhoods, because there's only a few places, public spaces to frequent, you just get to know people because there's only so many places to hang out. And so you really do develop, I would say, just a tighter community. That's been really interesting, really good in some ways. And challenging too, because sometimes if you have relationship problems or challenges, you also are going to continue to see those people. There's no escaping. There's no getting around that. I'd like to know when you were talking about the specific places, you mentioned people eating breakfast at the same diner. Do people do that? Because I'm watching Gilmore Girls right now with my oldest daughter, and every day they're in there getting their coffee. Is that a stereotype or is that true? When there's one diner, it's absolutely true. If you want that old school diner experience to get your eggs, sausage, and toast, that's where you got to go. It really is true. It's very Gilmore Girls. It's very Star (laughs) Hollow. Oh, I love that you said that. I don't know that we have a Luke, and we certainly, (laughs) at the same time, we don't have anybody quite as annoying as Lorelai. So I will say that as well. You're awesome. I'd love to hear you talk more about some of the challenges. You talked about reckoning with some of the challenges, and you already mentioned knowing everyone, and you used the word the fishbowl as one of them. Tell us more about some of the challenges that come with small town living. I think that's part of it, especially. If you're thinking of it through the lens of ministry in church and things happen in churches and not everybody stays at a church forever and people move on. But the thing is, moving on in a town of 25,000 people that is relatively small is difficult to do. And when you talk about proximity, you're still going to see those people, especially because there's two grocery stores there's one diner, there's one coffee shop. You're still going to run into people, which can create really awkward scenarios. 
But at the same time, what's interesting about that is you also learn how to forgive. You also learn how to be just, I think, more forbearing and more patient. And you have to, instead of just being able to walk away from something and be like, hey, we're in an area where we're probably never going to run into this person again. You're really forced, like that word reckon, you're really forced to sort of reckon with the reality that, hey, I want to be kind, I want to be forgiving, and I want to be understanding. And I want to make sure that we're not in a space where we're trying to avoid each other. But you have to be really upfront about that too, because you're going to see them. And so I've had conversations with people that have, say, left the church. One of the things I do is I say, hey, listen, we are going to see each other at the market tomorrow. I said, so I want to make sure that when you see me coming down the aisle, you don't turn and quickly go the other way. And I'm going to make a commitment to you not to do the same thing. Let's be at the very least, if we have some differences, let's be really friendly and civil. Let's show the love of Christ in those situations. But you got to be really upfront about it because that can be a massive challenge. And we've lived through some of the challenges of that specifically. And before we move on, a couple things that stood out to me that you mentioned as well is just the hostility that can be there towards outsiders and even suspicion and paranoia. I was curious. I wanted to hear you share more about how you've seen those play out. We've had so many people be so gracious to us, for sure. Let me me qualify that for a second. We're coming from a place like California, which has all kinds of reputations about you name it. So coming in as outsiders, that's been a challenge because I think what you get in towns like this is generation upon generation. You get generations that are stacked on each other. And so when you're coming into a small town, it's not like you're just trying to break into some community or a friends group. You're really breaking into families. And that's an incredibly hard thing to break into. And a lot of people have made their families their entire community. So they don't feel really the need to go outside of their family to cultivate friendships or create a wider, more diverse community. And so coming in, it can feel really intimidating because it's like to break in with them means I'm breaking into their family and they're not just inviting outsiders in. And so I think making friends can be a massive challenge. And there is the stigma of you not being born and raised here. That's a real thing. I remember having a conversation with this one guy when we moved here, and this was about five years after we moved here. He goes, I understand the outsider thing that you're talking about. Because I was just asking him, hey, how do we process this and help me with some, give me some wisdom here. He goes, I just feel I'm still dealing with this. I'll probably always be an outsider here. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, how long have you been here? (laughs) He goes, only 20 years. Only. You're like, I have no hope. How do I ever earn trust? I was like, brother, to me, you're like one of the OGs here. No, I've only been here 20 years. I go, again, you keep using that word only and it's depressing. (laughs) That's been a challenge. So what's been interesting about that is because our town is adjacent, it's right in between Columbus and Cleveland. Our town has become more of a bedroom community. You do get people like us coming in, commuting. A lot of people at our church are not native necessarily, but they've found a home coming into the community. And that's been just an interesting thing trying to figure out. You mentioned the seeing people who left your church at the market or whatever. And this was something I was really excited to ask you about because we've talked to people who are trying to love their neighbors in apartments and suburban contexts. And you know this from being in California in the suburbs. It's really hard to get to know people. Nobody knows people in a suburban context. The car pulls in to the driveway and the garage and it closes. In a rural small town context, you do know people, or at least I assume What does it look like to love your neighbor and to be intentional about getting to know your neighbor in a rural context? Is it different or is it 
still challenging, even though you do know the people who live next door to you? It's so funny because I think I was told that coming into a small town context, that sense of community was going to be easier to achieve. I've not found that to be the case. So growing up in suburban California, it operates a little bit differently, but it ends up the same. Maybe it's something that we're talking about when it comes to the age that we're in, whereas there's a level of privacy that people really bend into, I think, even here. And there's a lot of suburban influence here. So the garage door goes up, people come home from work, it goes down. I think just given the smaller proximity of space allows you just by some of the things we talked about earlier, just the availability of seeing people more often. I think it's that. In a suburban context, there's a good chance because people are commuting to work, you're just not going to see them unless it's the weekends or the night. Whereas here, you can have a regular connection with people. But I think it's a challenge. I don't know that that's really different anywhere because every area has unique challenges. And I think it's really a case of you have to get past that point with people where they think you are for their good and that you don't want anything and that you're not requiring anything from them. And I think coming in as an outsider into any place, there's probably going to be a sense of that. I think here what I've found is that you have to go slow and you have to build people's trust and you have to allow them to see that you're about a lot of the same things that they're about. Nobody lines up on everything. They need to know that at least there are some core things that you hold as values that they feel like they can be welcomed into, is how I might phrase it. And I think that speaks to how maybe some Christians feel in neighborhoods. They might live there, and this could be in any context, they may have lived there for a while, but they could still be seen as an outsider who, if you start to initiate, it's, okay, what do they want from me? Am I their project? Are they just trying to get me to church? They're trying to slip the Bible verse in the Easter egg at the Easter egg hunt. And I think some of those same principles apply of, like you said, being for the things that your neighbors are for and trying to find that common ground to connect over where you can build those relationships of trust. It's interesting. It's the same wherever you go, maybe in this day and age. It's about connecting, building trust, and finding that common ground. Common ground is a great word. Coming into any area, and this is something that just took us a long time, was there's a sense where you need to try to understand what their values are, understand how those values became their values, and get a sense of their story and respect that. So to come in and do something that doesn't really fit within the context of who these people are and what their experience has been, they're going to shut off to something like that. They're going to be very suspicious of something like that because their question is going to be, why are you here to do something that doesn't feel like us? Do you have something in your mind when you're sharing that, like a specific example, or are you just thinking more broadly? It's interesting because when we planted our church in 2013, we were the first church plant for many years. There's a lot of churches in our county. There's 140 churches in our county, a lot of churches, but there hadn't been any new churches for a while any church plants. And we planted downtown, which nobody had ever done as far as we've known in the history of the town. So one of the things that I did was I just said, we're going to plant something very simple. And that's more of who I am anyway. I'm not the lights and the flash. And that is just not my heart anyway. So that was not a big stretch for me. But there was a lot of intentionality in terms of saying, okay, what are the things that we want to present ourselves with as we lead out with this. And one of the things was simple church and friendliness slash hospitality. Those were really our key values that we wanted to lead out in as we were planting. I had the sense looking around and seeing other things maybe that had come into the town that were new, 
if something felt bombastic, it didn't seem to get received incredibly well. There needed to be a humility about somebody coming in from the outside and maybe starting something new. And it felt like people were much more receptive to something like that. Referring to what you were just sharing about you wanted to do things simply and you wanted to do it small, it makes me think about some of the references you wrote about in terms of the gift of slowness or the gift of small, in a sense. You say that the social footprint is small, the church size is smaller, people aren't retweeting you necessarily. And you talk about this a lot in the book, but I'd love for our listeners to hear, how have you wrestled with measuring your impact and where you find your validation with that gift of small? And then I want to come back to the gift of slowness, because you had some good stuff on that too. I'll be honest with you, that's probably been a personal struggle with me in some ways. As somebody who just does a lot of different things and does a multitude of various things that tend to be a little more public by nature. Because you like music and podcasting and writing. Yeah. I think for me personally, I'm always very tentative. I don't talk about those things from a church standpoint, from a pastoral standpoint. Those are things I just do. And if people want to enjoy them, they can find them, but it's not because I'm promoting them to the church or through the church. That's been tricky for me because I've just been really sensitive to people thinking that's my agenda. It's not. These are just things the Lord has given me. I enjoy them. I do them. Your hobbies, right? They essentially play out that way, I think. But social media has a way of exaggeration. We all know the exaggerating things. So I think there's probably been some misunderstandings with some of those things I've done over the years. Ronnie, are you just, do you just podcast all day? No, I actually podcast 35 minutes a week. There's some of those things where you can't explain, right? But when you get right down to it, they're not as big as they look because social media makes everything look bigger. I think the smallness thing is something that, given what I just said, there's probably things that I'm probably hyper aware of. And I'm probably, maybe a good word is I'm slightly paranoid about because I don't want things filtering to people as a way that expands me in a way that I don't think is accurate, but then I don't have any control over shrinking as much as I would like to. In order to do that means I would have to talk too much about those things. There's some catch-22s with some of these things on a personal level. On another level, I think it's just reminding people what I've done over the years is just constantly reminding people of what our values are. And our values aren't just simply to be small for the sake of being small, but our values are, hey, here are the few things that we want to center our lives around. And that way, we don't have a big grand vision. We have this smaller vision that we say can have a big impact if we just stick to the main and the plain thing. That's really what we've done in terms of the smallness. On one hand, there's a personal part about me since I do all these different things. I can feel a little overaware. I'm probably overly sensitive about it, but there's a part of me that's fearful. And then I think just in the church itself or in the community itself, it's, hey, don't present yourself as something that's looking big or looking to be expansive. Stay in the context of the lane that you're in because of the town. It's almost like when you talked earlier about the gift of limits with the seasons, it's almost like a gift that God's given you that's probably also really challenging in some ways from what I'm hearing you share, is that he's limiting, in a way, your expression of who you are. And I think anyone who probably has a big personality or big dreams or big, I don't know, whatever it is, hobbies, big work, 
big success in a small town context is how do you express those things in ways that don't feel threatening or attention seeking? And I imagine that would be really difficult. And yet you also need people who enjoy you and who enjoy those parts of you, but yet you're limiting your expression of those things in a way for the sake of others. That's a great word. And I think limiting your expression, I love that phrase. My wife and I have had way too many conversations about that. I'm a big extroverted personality and I've had to shrink that down a little bit for sure. Even with the preaching, that does not work for a lot of people. And you could say that in any context, but I think specifically in this context, there's definitely been an awareness of that. Hey, come in a little quieter, come in a little more thoughtful, slow down. Even in the way I present myself, slow down. Too many hand <laughs> movements. And there's been so much conversation about how we do that. And we don't want to scare anybody off or push anybody away by being overly expressive. And I think that's what I loved about your book as well as highlighting the smallness and the slowness, which in neighboring and reaching out to your neighbors, there are small acts that you do over and over, over time. And there's also a slowness to it. We say that neighboring is more like a crockpot than a microwave. It takes time to build trust and build those relationships, especially in this culture. And it's hard. We did campus ministry. It was fast. It was fun. Life changed happened quickly. And so then to move into this new space with adults who are peers in a neighborhood where you don't have all this time, I had to get used to the slowness of it. How have you had to get used to the slowness of a rural ministry? And I don't know, maybe just speak to those of us who are trying to reach out and see God work, but it's taking a while. We're wondering if nothing's really even happening at all. It feels dead at times. That last point you just made, I think we have to remember the way that Jesus does things in people's lives is, I like how Zach Eswine always phrased it, we want to do fast and famous things, but Jesus does things slow over a long period of time and produces these character results as the result. Small town, inner city, suburban, Everybody here has a MacBook. Everybody here is on social media. So there are some things that have shrunk down culture in some ways in the sense that even in this environment, it's probably faster than it was years ago. And so the expectation is that we can do things more fast and famously. I think it's a discipline. So I think slowness to me has been a discipline. And I think it's a good discipline, but I think it goes against the grain of our hearts that we feel, especially in pastoral ministry, where you are results-oriented in some ways, even though you know that, man, fruit comes over long periods of time, and it's having the wisdom to look back and be able to see the way God has changed and the way God has sanctified things. That's why we need to recount the wondrous deeds of the Lord, because we got to look back over those long periods of time. But that is so hard for us to do, because again, if you're looking for results within the last day, week, month, half a year, it just looks like nothing's happening. And again, you can do things to make it so it looks like things are happening. This is where some of my personality comes in. I'm very aesthetically driven. I like things to look certain ways. I like to build things and make things. And so what I can do is I can say, hey, I'm not seeing the spiritual character slash results that I like. So let's make something prettier. Let's build something in our space or let's do things like that. And I think a lot of that is trying to compensate for the greater growth that's happening, but I'm not seeing enough of that I'm dissatisfied or discontent in. And that's something the Lord's really convicted me of. And I've had to pull back and go, hey, you know what? Might not be the time to do another minor building project for the church. 
just because that gets you going doesn't mean it's the right thing. And it also shouldn't be something that you're using to compensate for your lack of waiting and your lack of trust and all that beautiful Psalm 131 stuff that we need to be doing, even as we wait and hope. That's just been a growing thing for me. I haven't done incredibly well in that. What I'm hearing from you is just that you've really leaned into the heart formation that can come from slowing down and listening to God and not being in a place with all the flashy, fast pace. It's all going a million miles an hour, but you're really asking God to work in those deep places. Speaking of that, you mentioned forgiveness. When I think about small towns, and maybe this is a stereotype, but I think of how there can be longstanding grudges. The Hatfield and the McCoys. Yeah, like generational feuds almost. And maybe that's not true, but tell me if it is or not. I do want to hear just what kind of impact could forgiveness have just if people were just to forgive their neighbors? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know that it would be exclusive to this setting. I think just forgiveness is hard for all of us in any setting. I think, again, the proximity issues that we have here in terms of Sometimes you do need to separate from people that you've had issues with. You can forgive, but it might be a good thing not to see them anymore for a variety of reasons. You don't quite have that luxury here as much. So I think being able to say, hey, we had some misunderstandings or we just have some disagreements on how we see, whether it's ministry or politics or a variety of things, are we going to coexist in a way that is giving God glory? When I see you, are there things that just surface in me that I haven't given to the Lord? It causes me to hold a grudge rather than extend grace and pray for you. Gosh, those are just always things that we're having to wrestle with because it's so easy to be wounded by another human being. And it's so easy to be damaged and betrayed. And those things take a long time to get over. And a lot of times we can use sort of distance from a person as one of the ways that God helps us in that healing process. So if you don't have that and you're still seeing them all the time, the Lord's going to be working some different things in your life through that environment. We definitely have numerous examples of that in our 14 years here where it's just been so hard, right? Because we can't escape. And it takes a different level of acknowledgement that, hey, forgiveness is hard and the Lord is surfacing in my heart that I don't extend it as easily as I thought I did, or as quickly as I like to think that I do. So definitely sanctifying. I think you're right, though. We've seen that in our context. And I would say we're in a suburban neighborhood, but I would say forgiveness is one of the greatest apologetics you can have in your faith. And and you're right. Going back to forgiveness, and I even think about heading into an election year. Woohoo! We're super excited about that. Things that can cause conflict in communities, different political preferences, even you talk about needing to speak up about different things that you see in your context, which again, it's not limited, but Christian nationalism, racism, and how they can feel like a giant to face when you have to speak up against that. You said you felt anxious even writing that. Yeah. So tell us, what have you learned in addressing some of those things or even trying to help people with different political views, maybe be in the same church together and getting through those issues? I wish I had something magical to... (laughs) Please help us. We'll post it in the show notes. We've had all the same stuff since 2016 and then through COVID that everybody else has battled, regardless of 
what end of the political spectrum you're on or in. I think for this context that we're in, wisdom and discernment, it's so key. And I think having a good team of elders, if we're talking about it from a church standpoint, is really important in terms of being able to say, hey, is this something we need to address? Yes or no. And if it is something that we agree needs to be addressed from the platform, how do we address it? We're not here to address something to sort of push people and back people into a corner, but how do we address it in a way that allows them to think and to process it in a gospel way? In that, you're probably going to offend somebody even by bringing up certain things or addressing certain things. So I think after everything most of us went through with the pandemic, I would say that I'm very gun shy. I'm a no politics in the pulpit guy anyway. I'm very careful and I'm not a hugely political guy just by nature anyway. But when things need to be addressed or the church needs to know that, hey, there's a lot of talk on social media or just regular news media, you need to know how the leadership, where we stand on this particular thing. I think you got to handle those things carefully and delicately. There are some things maybe you don't need to touch. So I also have had experience with other friends. They touch anything that happens. They're addressing it. That would not be my approach. But I think when something affects the nation to a degree where lives are being affected, and I would say those deeper issues that we can't just ignore, or it would be wrong for us to ignore, I think that there's a discernment there. I'll just give you an example. I don't think this will get me in trouble, but here we are. (laughs) When the January 6th thing happened a couple of years ago, and this may have been a little bit easier, but the denomination we're with released a statement. That was really helpful for us because that gave us a little bit of a foundational thing. But it was as simple as me saying, hey, this is a massive thing that just happened two days ago, whenever it was. We just want you to know that as leadership, that's not something we can support. You need to know that. You need to know that the denomination we're with, that that is something they've released a statement with. We're going to put the link that you guys can hear what our president has to say. And so I think that's about all I said because there was so much talk about it. It should have went without saying that we didn't support that, but it was enough in the environment we're in for them to know that their leaders weren't going to stand behind that, support it for these reasons. Here's a link. And that's all that was said. It was 64 seconds. And the team thought I should say that. And I did. And it was fine. There have been other instances and other things that have not gone as swimmingly as that. But again, you do it slow, you choose your words carefully, and you remind everybody of the things that are supposed to unite us rather than divide us. And I think that's something that I learned in terms of how to communicate those things. There's no magic formula. It's super difficult. And I know we're bringing up a lot of the hard things, but you brought them up first in your book. It's okay. I know. I did. Another one of the big giants that you talk about is just the issue of addiction and even giants, the some of the suicide and depression that you've seen. And I know you're writing specifically to pastors, and you say that the pastor can step into some of those tragedies because of, not always, but there can be celebrity status. So what about people in your congregations, or for us, for listeners who may live in a small town, maybe they're not in a position of spiritual leadership like a pastor, But what would be your call to just ordinary believers in those types of tragedies? How should they respond? They might feel like, I don't have that role. Is it okay? How do I step in? What would you say to them? 
I think the first thing is it's really dependent on relationship, I think, before anything else. To have a relationship with a family who maybe is a family member that's really battling with some of these kinds of issues or just having a personal relationship with somebody who's battling these issues. I think a lot of it is approaching these things as not somebody that can fix anything, but somebody that can offer presence, can offer understanding, can offer prayer. We have pastors and we have counselors and we have all kinds of people that can help on different levels. And I think if you're somebody who really has a heart for people that battle with addiction issues, because maybe you grew up with a parent or a family member, you have some experience with it. I think that's really valuable for a person like that to look around and see if there's some spaces that they can step into because of their experience and just be able to have that, to stand that heart out. It's probably not for everybody. Those are really difficult situations. The co-author of that book, Donnie Griggs, he's in a particular area that has been hit with that to just an alarming degree. And so I think he's part of the chaplaincy of the fire department. He'll get these phone calls to just step into these really horrific situations. He's availed himself. That is something that is near and dear to his heart based on his past experiences. He's had a massive influence as their church has dealing with those issues. They've had a major impact in their town. They are seen as a go-to for those types of things. So yeah, I think it's a matter of opening your eyes to it, not shutting off to it, and then finding people in the congregation that maybe have a big heart for it, have some experience dealing with it. As a small town pastor, paint a picture and give a vision for maybe what could happen if even just imagining people in your church People, believers begin to intentionally reach out to their next door neighbors, build those relationships with ultimate motives, ultimately wanting them to come to know Jesus, but no bait and switch, but they're valuing them as a person and every little step along the way, building that common ground. What could happen in a small town context if that began to happen more and more? That's a really good question. As you're asking it, the first thing that comes to mind is it would allow people in a small town to see that they have a wider reach than they think they do. I think that there's a sense of, we don't have a lot of influence because we're in a place that nobody's heard of, or we're happy because of that. So there's two sides of it. We don't have a lot of influence, or hey, we're happy we don't have a lot of influence because we like being a little more safe and protected here in a little bit of a bubble. The world has opened up to everybody because of technology and a lot of different things. And I think it's just, it's giving people a vision that the gospel is all pervasive and it doesn't matter where you are. The Lord has given you resources and he's given you a heart to not only reach your neighbor, but being able to leverage maybe some of the benefits of being in a small town that can even extend out. I think it's allowing people to see that the gospel, it's big. It can impact you and it can impact somebody, an anonymous person in a largely anonymous town. But the gospel has such a wide-reaching effect that we should think of the range of the gospel and maybe open ourselves up to what's beyond the limitations of the square footage that we're in, which is not very large. What I see is it's just more of a mindset. It's seeing that the Lord is working everywhere, and it's opening up your mind and your heart to all the possibilities of where the Lord works and how He works. Uh, I think that there's a tendency in a small town to just pull in and tuck in and lose the sense of the power of the gospel. When that catches in a church, you're going to see some energy there. You're going to see some evangelism. You're going to see some hope. It's a big gospel for small towns, your next book. That's, it. <laughs> That's great. 
That one's already been written. You end your book with two chapters. It was one and two by accident. You guys both wrote the chapter on endurance and then decided to include them both, which I loved. But it's a call to keep on loving Jesus and then to keep on shepherding the people in your context. And I think that applies to all of us, whether we're in small towns or not. So what final words would you have for us on the need to endure when maybe we're tired of serving, things feel dark, we can't see God is working? What would you say to those of us who feel that way? I think when we're in a place, we're wondering if we can take that next step that might be a time that the Lord is telling you to not take that next step and to learn how to rest and learn how to hit pause. Part of endurance is learning to know when to stop and when to stop pushing and when to relax your pace so that you can better model the pace of Jesus. And so when I think of endurance, I think of somebody that might be in the thick of all kinds of things. And if they can, and if they can pause and reflect and look around to see what's going on, that might be a moment for them to talk about what their spiritual habits are like. And hey, is this a moment that God is saying, hey, just stop some things. Just take a rest. The Lord is working. He's working through you, but he works in spite of you. And he is going to do his work regardless of you. And if we actually believed that, I think we can endure through some of those moments that feel either like we can't catch our breath or even those times where we're feeling very lethargic, we need some energy. And so to ask yourself, hey, what does resting in the Lord look like physically, emotionally, spiritually? Who are some people that I can talk to? I think some of our endurance problems, we immediately shift to this place where we feel like I just got to get through it. But maybe part of the endurance is not getting through anything, but pausing before you continue through what it is that you're going through. And I don't think we do that enough. So for the person trying to endure, hey, see if the Lord is really calling you to take a step back, not out necessarily, but just back for a minute. I always think the Lord will do something really unique in that if we take that risk to pause. Yeah, that's really good. I was taking some deep breaths (laughs) while you were saying, I was like, that's good. Because when I think of endurance, I think of grit. I think of pushing forward, empowering through. That's even challenging for me to think through just, yeah, pausing in the midst of those times. That's really good. Thank you, Ronnie, for your perspective as a small town pastor and the gift you've given us on teaching us about the gift of slowness and the gift of small and for calling us to speak up sometimes about uncomfortable topics, but also to pause and slow down and to see endurance as an opportunity to trust God to rest. I'm so grateful to have had this time. I feel like it's been an hour-long discipleship appointment of just getting to hang out. I want to go back and listen to that last part you were saying about endurance. And it's just been a gift. So thank you. Oh, thank you, guys. It's been awesome. Loved it. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Leave us a comment with your thoughts on today's episode or let us know other topics related to neighboring you want to talk about. Or follow the link in the show notes to share a neighboring story with us. Tell us what you're trusting God for in your neighborhood and how you're seeing God at work. You can also follow Placed for a Purpose on Instagram. And you can help others find us by leaving a review, subscribing, and sharing this episode with a friend.